Well, I originally intended for this episode to be about an entirely different topic to what the title suggests, but given the extreme events that have been unfolding on the European continent right now, I thought it best to look at or analyze some of the economic ramifications we've seen uh, from these Western sanctions a little bit. It's very early days, uh, but also the volatility and the shocks to energy and commodity markets. Of course, oil being an obvious standout, but metals such as nickel have seen extreme price movements based on the unfolding events in Ukraine. It's also good to frame the episode, not just about what we will discuss, but perhaps in this particular instance, what we won't discuss. I'm not a history expert, I'm certainly not a a military expert, and that kind of discussion falls outside of the scope of the show anyway. It's not to diminish the tragic loss and waste of life occurring as I speak, but as they say, I'll stay in my lane and focus on some of the stuff that I hopefully can explain to you on the show today. It's lucky I'm not a history expert because my opinion before all this was that Putin was engaging in a posturing exercise uh, by way of his troops on the border in order to attempt to get perhaps concessions from uh, the Ukraine or, or NATO. I certainly was very shocked to suddenly see the headlines that the tanks and troops had started to roll in. And I will leave you with something or some writing rather by someone who is much smarter than me when it comes to geopolitics. Uh, That is author Tim Marshall. You know, when all of this happened, I actually went back to my bookshelf just to pick up this book. I read it pretty close to two years now. Uh, It's called Prisoners of Geography. He's written a fair few books, Tim Marshall. Uh, The short of it is that he he focuses on geopolitics, but through the lens of geography specifically, which is quite an interesting take. And he dedicates an entire chapter to Russia in this book that I'm talking about. Now, I went back to refresh myself on exactly what he wrote, and I picked out some of it here. Uh, Mind you, this is written in 2016. Uh, So this is from Tim Marshall's Prisoners of Geography, quote, the annexation of Crimea, referring here to the 2014 events showed Russia is prepared for military action to defend what it sees as its interests in what it calls its near abroad. It took a rational gamble that outside powers would not intervene and Crimea was doable. It is close to Russia, could be supplied across the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov, and could rely on internal support from large sections of the population of the peninsula. Russia has not finished with Ukraine yet, nor elsewhere. He goes on to cite examples of fighting military actions in the Donbass region of Ukraine that happened in the years following the 2014 annexation of Crimea. Uh, A little later, he goes on on a different page in reference to the countries of Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, which also border Russia. Uh, They sit north of Ukraine. He said Russia does not need to send an armoured division into Latvia, Lithuania or Estonia to influence events there. But if it ever does, it would justify the action by claiming that the large Russian communities there are being discriminated against. Now, he is not talking about Ukraine there, of course, but this is but he's spot on with exactly what Russia uh, claimed at the outset of the invasion in that it is an operation to keep safe Russian communities within Ukraine's border, uh, claims of denazifying areas of Ukraine and so on throughout the country. Now, to be fair, he expresses in the book also that it would seem unlikely that Putin ever uh, militarily pushed all the way to Kiev as it would cause him a massive headache 
in his words. And granted, it's written in 2016, but it goes to show that even people who spend much of their time in their career examining this part of the world and predicting things like the above were also just as shocked by what is occurring uh, in Ukraine. Well, without further delay, let's get into episode 66. We'll highlight some of the key economic sanctions levied against Russia and Russia's response to this so far. Uh, I've got an awesome segment for the end to discuss what has been happening to the oil markets and the forces driving that increase in the price. Let's get into it. So we are going to go very quickly at a high level, highlight some of the key sanctions levied against Russia for their actions. I think it's probably still a bit too early to predict long-term ramifications of these. So we'll touch on it at a high level. I mean, I have some ideas, but it would be extreme speculation. And much of what I'm reading about the topic is it's all over the place in terms of what people are predicting may happen. The other thing that's been happening is this mass corporate cancellation of Russia, a good example of that being like, for example, McDonald's closed down over 800 stores in the country, big RIP to the Russian chicken nuggets. But there's been heaps of this corporate exit from the country. Some of it forced through sanctions, others perhaps into anticipation of further sanctions. So wrapping up their business now uh, to avoid any risk moving forward. Some of it as a response to the social reaction and, and just the event itself, I suppose. But with both these moves from countries enforcing sanctions to companies leaving the country altogether, it appears to be very swiftly or almost beginning to turn Russia into a type of pariah state. Now, at a high level, the big sanctions include restrictions and freezes on Russia's central bank and the reserves of other countries' currencies that it has or the central bank owns that it has around the world. For example, freezes on the US dollar reserves held by the Russian Central Bank or euros or pounds, uh, whatever. Specifically, the European Union, the United Kingdom and the United States have also put a blanket ban on any business with the Russian Central Bank. Uh, more recently, in the last couple of weeks, uh, President Biden had a tour of Europe, met with the G7. They further announced that it wouldn't just be foreign currency reserve, but it would also be gold reserves uh, restricted from being used by the Russian Central Bank. So maybe let's talk about why Russia would have foreign currency reserves in the first place. You know, one reason is the significant drop in the Russian ruble, which actually happened when they annexed Crimea in 2014. Obviously, it's happened just now too with the invasion of Ukraine, but but uh, there was a, a big drop when uh, in the ruble when they annexed Crimea uh, due to a mixture of sanctions uh, that started back then and entities seeking to remove themselves from Russian exposure. The ruble fell significantly following that invasion and subsequent annexation. Uh, Russia appeared to learn a very valuable lesson in that they need to have other options or other cards to play to help stabilize their currency from the hits of Western sanctions. At precisely the same time as the ruble getting the rug pulled out from underneath it in 2014, you can actually go back and check out these charts yourself a really good website I talk about all the time is Trading Economics. It's it's really good for charts. So at the same time as the ruble fell in 2014, Russia actually started to build its foreign currency reserves. And it has actually continued to increase and increase these ever since 2014. Now, the theory behind doing this in using foreign reserves, uh, so i.e. large quantities of 
you know, major currencies like the US dollar or the yen or the euro, like big stable um, international currencies. Uh, the theory behind using these is to stabilize your own domestic currency and and I guess you, you could say manipulate it with downwards or upwards pressure. So for example, if you wanted to put uh, upward pressure on your own currency, so increase the value of it, you could actually use reserves of say US dollars to buy your own domestic currency. And thus it increases the value of your currency relative to, in this example, the US dollar. Now to put it simply, you can use you know, a bank of foreign world currencies to purchase your own currency uh, to stabilize it, to stop it from dropping and increase it in the event that your currency is falling. And that was the plan. The issue, as it is being reported, is that Russia, and this is not like something unique to them, every major country or central bank around the world does it, so it's perfectly normal, but Russia held much of these foreign reserves with overseas banks. It's not like they were all held locked up in the Kremlin or something like this. So it became very easy for the European Union and the United States to order their own domestic banks to freeze those assets that belonged to the Russian central bank because it was in their own country. Now, I have no idea if this was a complete miscalculation. Maybe, but it effectively means that those weapons of the Russian central bank are now completely out of arm's reach given the sanctions in place, which who knows whether that gets lifted. But anyway, you probably heard about this massive drop in the value of ruble. There was, there was headlines being circulated. I even saw comparisons to exactly how low it got or how low the value got. One of them, the value of Russia's ruble to US dollars was less than the value of the digital currency in the kids' video game Roblox. I don't know if that's true. I didn't actually look it up, to be honest, but I saw plenty of memes dunking on Russia about it. But it's worth mentioning that the ruble has actually bounced back. Uh, in fact, the Washington Post reported only a few days ago that the ruble has recovered pretty much nearly all its value, meaning the value was at just prior to the invasion of Ukraine due to its energy sales of oil, oil and gas, which have continued. Uh, we'll touch on the ruble again later in the show to highlight one way that Putin's trying to look for other ways to support his currency. But let's, I'll just quickly mention the other, I guess the other big part of the sanctions of restrictions, which is the removal of Russian banks from the SWIFT banking system. SWIFT, essentially a large network infrastructure for banks around the world to talk to each other and send payments. You might have even seen the term SWIFT if you've actually done an international transfer personally in the past. So yeah, essentially a mechanism for banks to talk to each other and facilitate payments across the globe. Now, another th interesting thing that's happened since the 2014 annexation of Crimea is Russia had begun working on its own SWIFT because th these kind of these kind of threats of sanctions, like say kicking them out, uh, kicking their banks out of um, the SWIFT system, have actually been levied in the past. So they have actually been in production or making their own version of SWIFT to so that they, I guess they still have like a second option if it was ever to happen in the future. I don't know really how that's going. But uh, the, one of the deeper details of these particular sanctions, uh, this was reported by Bloomberg on the 1st of April. So seven Russian banks were banned from payment messaging system SWIFT earlier in the month. But there were two notable absentees, Spurbank of Russia and the 100 million retail clients it serves and Gazprom Bank and its mere 5 million. Now, remember that name, Gazprom Bank, because it relates to something we're going to discuss further in the podcast, and you'll get some 
clarity on why that bank was spared from the sanctions specific to SWIFT. I'll end this bit by saying something that, look, it's probably annoyed me a little bit, almost like this victory lap that's happening in the mainstream press about the sanctions levied at Russia. I'll say a couple things about it. I actually feel, look, I feel sorry for the Russian people, really. I mean, whether they support Putin or not, they will be the ones that end up suffering. I appreciate that naturally one of the ideas behind sanctions is for them to feel the squeeze and thus hopefully put political pressure on Putin to end the war. The war's never black and white. It's it's all shades of grey. And I worry that another side effect to these sanctions is that they they actually do the reverse. Maybe they actually further alienate the population of Russia to the West and actually only strengthen Putin's support, given that he has this easy enemy to point the finger at being the big bad major Western countries that have you know, lobbed their country full of sanctions and it's impacting all their lives. I suppose much of this just comes down to how quickly there is a... If, if there is and how quickly there is a peaceful resolution, obviously, fingers crossed, ASAP, and then what happens to those sanctions after there is a peaceful resolution or, or, or a peace settlement. I guess that's why I've ne- I haven't been too comfortable predicting the exact outcomes of these sanctions because I think it's I think it's early days and it's all up in the air. But we're going to transition now to one of the other fascinating themes coming out of this invasion and that has been the reaction of commodity markets and we have seen some very crazy moments uh, one of which was the price of nickel surging so much so that the London Metal Exchange actually had to suspend trading in nickel uh, back in early March because the price of the metal doubled in a single day and this price surge stems from Russia being a massive supplier of nickel. In fact, according to this article I read in The Guardian, the Russian company that is the largest supplier of refined nickel, their name's Nornickel, uh, that company is actually headed by an oligarch who has not been sanctioned by the West as of now, funnily enough. Uh, but nickel was one that had a crazy price surge. Wheat prices have also increased significantly. Uh, sitting on average around the 25-ish percent higher than pre-invasion price uh, due to the fact that pre-invasion Ukraine and Russia together accounted for almost a third of global wheat exports. So obviously concern uh, for that part of the market. But the one I'm going to focus on is oil because it has been really interesting both in terms of why it's increased, uh, what's being done about it, slash what can be done about it. Uh, Plus all this plays into this already ongoing issue of inflation so let's just get into it and we'll find out what in the world is going on with the price of oil so let's talk about the price of oil and how the actions of russia invading ukraine and the reaction and sanctions from the us and the eu have played on oil but also broader commodities markets as well now the oil one is interesting because it's a very tangible one to us just from i guess a behavioral economics point of view that's something we spoke about on the the market pulse podcast in the past it's tangible because it feeds into the fuel prices of course that we pay as consumers at petrol stations or gas stations for my extremely small u.s audience and we pay for many products in our lives which have commodity inputs and I'm probably wandering a little bit into my own personal speculation opinion zone, but 
I feel like the fuel prices really do trigger a much more visceral and emotional reaction from consumers in our economies, and it, which brings its own political issues as we're actually, or we're actually finding out here because there had been the talk about cutting the fuel excise, which which happened, um, what's happening for, uh, I believe, for six months or something like that, uh, and to a greater extent uh, for Biden in the US. And that's because we tend to you know, fill up our car every one to two weeks. And we're also very aware of the prices all the time because they're on these giant electronic boards for us to drive or walk past every day. So even if we're not going to fill up our car, we can always like have this tab on exactly what the price was that day. Again, I know fuel doesn't equal oil, but of course the oil price feed once you know past refinery and all that stuff feeds into the price of the fuel. So as prices spiked following the invasion of by Russia of Ukraine, and then you had policy moves by the US such as banning the import of Russian oil and Russian natural gas, which they did, and as the price of the benchmarks for oil, the main to being the WTI or West Texas Intermediate and the Brent Crude Index, they started to climb very quickly and significantly. And we, we all knew that we were about to feel, feel it, I guess, in the, in the coming weeks when we started to see that happen. So let's talk some numbers. I mentioned that then that the US themselves had banned the import of Russian energy, specifically oil and natural gas. But the other point that you'll hear after this news is that Russia doesn't mean much to US in terms of energy imports in that Russian oil makes up only about 3% of all US imports of oil, which in barrels, according to Forbes, this was in an 11th of March article, equates to roughly 200,000 barrels per day. Now, partly this is due to the US itself being a large oil producer, um, especially post-shale revolution. It's become its own extractor and producer of oil, but also... It doesn't particularly need Russian oil because it has closer options, uh, closer to home options. So the the actual top three countries where the US does import the vast, vast majority of its oil from uh, Canada, uh, Mexico, and the global beacon of free expression and democracy, Saudi Arabia. But as we must remember when it comes to oil, it is a commodity. It's a global commodity. It's traded on global markets and markets move up and down. They're persuaded by optimism and pessimism and an examination of risk and outlook for that particular asset or commodity as all traded assets are. So just because the US itself doesn't import much from Russia, Russia itself is a very, very big oil exporter on the global stage. In fact, Russia is one, it's consistently in the top three oil exporters globally. According to the International Energy Agency or IEA, the vast majority of Russia's oil exports end up in two places. These are China and Europe. In fact, as of late 2021, European countries bought up 42% of Russia's total oil products. And it isn't just oil. Uh, Europe actually rely on Russia for natural gas. In fact, more so than any other area in the world, they receive 74% of Russia's natural gas exports. That figure also pulled from the IEA. And the biggest recipients... Well, it actually it tends to be a pattern of how close you are to Russia, uh, being the more likelihood, you, the more likely you are to specifically rely on the import of oil and gas from them. But the biggest recipients in the EU are Germany, Turkey, Italy, France, and Poland. So quickly back to the point around that I made about oil, it's globally traded commodity. Apart from the actual invasion itself, so when Russia invaded Ukraine. 
which did cause oil prices to increase. Uh, the move by the US to ban Russian imports still, so regardless of the fact that it's not a huge importer of Russian oil anyway, it still puts pressure on oil prices uh, because it adds another layer of risk and uncertainty around Russian oil moving forward. For example, questions start coming up, will other countries follow the US lead either now immediately or maybe they might accelerate their time frame of following the US lead should maybe refinery companies accept as much Russian oil as they might have would if there's an increased risk of them not being able to offload them into other markets. You know, these kind of questions hover over any kind of market or like these kind of risk-related questions. So in this regard, when the US makes a move like this, and it's why whilst the US can go ahead and place a ban on Russian oil and gas, the EU response has been that they will aim to make Europe free of Russian energy by 2030. If you are a country like Germany or Poland, um, putting aside the atrocities currently being committed by Russia, it is a tough sell to just completely cut yourself off from the energy supplies. They Russia has quite a lot of leverage in this regard over countries like a Germany or a Poland. They can't just simply turn off the tap, so to speak, uh, without damning their own population. And how exactly can Putin extract leverage? Well, one way actually ties back to the issues that Russia is having with their domestic currency, the ruble. So as reported in Reuters on the 31st of March, President Putin signed a decree saying that foreign buyers must pay for Russian gas in rubles as of April 1st. He further stated that if payments weren't made, it would be considered a default and then, quote, with all the ensuing consequences as in he would shut off supply. Remember that bank we just spoke about uh, 10 minutes ago, uh, Gazprom Bank, that wasn't, uh, I guess it was kind of like left aside to some of the, the sanctions? Well, Putin's decree specifically instructs those foreign energy buyers, so for, uh, foreign countries, within, say, within the EU, to open an account with Gazprom Bank to convert their currency into rubles and pay for the Russian gas. Now, I guess the reporting about why they dodged this bank, why they dodged Western sanctions, because this is a very crucial bank uh, before those payments for energy supplies, which still need to occur. Uh, and then like the, the day after Putin signed this decree instructing buyers to pay in ruble, there was a, some further clarifications. The Financial Times did some good reporting. Um, they said that a, a Kremlin spokesperson had said that the payments for the deliveries that are currently occurring, like in early April right now, they don't actually have to be made until the middle of or towards the end of April or early May. Meaning, so as I'm recording this podcast on the 6th of April, this is still very much an ongoing situation. So it's, uh, it didn't seem clear to me that countries had paid in rubles yet. Uh, there are reports that several EU nations have actually said that they're just going to continue paying in the currency of the existing contracts, which is often euros. But, you know, it's got a few weeks of runway ahead of us and anything could happen. Certainly we'll be interested to watch what happens there. It's this like game of chicken of who's going to, so is someone going to cut off the supply or is someone going to cave and pay in Russian rubles? But let's swing back to oil because the movement in the price of oil isn't solely directed by events in Ukraine and countries such as the US have actually implemented steps to bring down the price of oil recently. However, 
and this is where it gets extra juicy, there are forces at play in the oil markets and the energy industry that you might not expect, but have a very hefty impact on where oil prices are and will go. So let's get into it. So oil, you know, put simply, causing a consumer headache for us. Of course, it's refined down to become the very fuel we put in our cars. And right around the world, there is plenty. It's, you know, it's not just felt here in Australia and, and in the US, it's felt right around the, the world, this price shock with the current cost of, of fuel. And as we discussed on this podcast, inflation has been a sticky point and fuel prices are one of the many gripes consumers currently have with the inflation we've seen. But inflation isn't just bad for our wallets, it's also bad for politicians who have angry constituents demanding action on said rising cost of fuel as part of the whole inflation picture. Now, it's especially bad actually for the current uh, President Biden administration and the Democratic Party in the US as the 2022 midterms are fast approaching. They're at the end, well, it's not that fast, I guess. It's not until November, but this year's flying along. So by the next episode, it'll be November. So, uh, But all signs point towards the Republicans handing them a pretty significant beating so the Biden administration wants to fix this. One way, as just announced at the end of the week, is that he will tap the US Strategic Petroleum Reserve, or the SPR. Now, the SPR is basically this giant stockpile of oil that the US has. Uh, and actually, many countries have this. It's kind of like this emergency pile, but it's a stick to the US. So the SPR, it's for emergencies to help with supply constraints in the market. For example, some, you know, some examples in the past when the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has been tapped is like, so when those, I can't remember the years, but the, when Hurricane Katrina and Rita uh, smashed the Gulf Coast, that, well, that's also where a lot of oil production happens. And so the US tapped into their reserves, these emergency reserves, so that they could keep some control on the actual oil price that wouldn't spike up with, the, with concerns over supply. So it's an emergency stockpile. Uh, Biden advised he would actually be releasing 1 million barrels of oil per day from this. And apparently that level of release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has never happened in the history of the United States. So that like that much per day. And look, it certainly helps a bit. But there's also a more systemic supply problem that releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve doesn't actually fix. And if you go over a look at oil prices, it's been a choppy decade, but nothing actually hurt the oil industry more than COVID. You know, COVID smashed energy producers because we all stopped traveling due to lockdowns, you know, due to no overseas travel and the price of oil collapsed. So that meant you know massive production setups being shut down, huge industry layoffs, investors in these companies getting very just getting wiped out so i'm not here to shill for the oil industry i'm just explaining the reality on the ground and the damage that COVID brought and furthermore to to highlight that to get back to a certain level of production and supply you can't just turn the switch on after you've been through that uh, which which we're finding out and we found out more broadly about the supply chain in its entirety you know it's if it was at a certain level and then you you know, you know, shut a bunch of it down and reduced it um, due to the pandemic, you can't then just immediately jump back to the level that it was. It takes quite a bit of time to ramp up. However, with oil, what do you do if the industry 
doesn't want to ramp up or maybe it's not incentivized to ramp up? What if the industry doesn't mind the elevated oil prices? I mean, they did get absolutely hosed during COVID. So what if they actually want to use the higher oil prices to recoup what was lost? Well, the Dallas Fed recently surveyed over 100 oil and gas executives and they asked them this very question. They said, why aren't you... Why are you growing production? What would it take to grow production? What price in, in oil do you need to justify you know, growth in your production? And as highlighted by great reporter Joe Weisenthal over at Bloomberg last week, the overwhelming reason why there hasn't been more domestic energy production in the US was, and the answer was investor pressure to maintain capital discipline. In fact, the Bloomberg piece highlighted a second question which asks, what crude oil price is necessary like what what is it what at what point is does it reach when it gets uh, us producers back into growth mode and the sec the second highest answer was it is not dependent on price uh, so and and these kind of results are very in line with these comments made by the ceo of a company called pioneer natural resources they're a new york stock exchange listed oil company they're one of the big biggest producers, and they might even be the bigger, I'm not sure, but they're one of the biggest producers in the US. And the CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources was on Bloomberg TV and they were asked questions about this, about what it's going to take for them or what would it take for them to increase supply of oil. And I'll let you listen. Well, Scott, a story we have been following over many weeks and once again today is geopolitics, the situation on the border with Ukraine and potential Russian action, which, of course, Russia denies. Should there actually be armed conflict? Should that result in a disruption of energy flows? Would Pioneer in that scenario potentially increase production to help make up any potential shortfall? No, uh, Pioneer will stay with our plan. We announced a CapEx plan, as I said, regardless of whether it's $150 oil, $200 oil or $100 oil, we're not going to change our growth plans. It's going to be up to um, Saudi and UAE. They have a pact with OPEC+. Plus. Uh, they probably are about the only two countries that could change that, uh, and they'll have to decide what to do under that scenario. If, if Russian oil is sanctioned or if Russia decides to, to st uh, stop exporting, then it's going to be up to the Saudis and UAEs to decide whether or not to break the pact and increase production yeah. under those guidelines. So if the president phoned you up, Scott, and said, you know what, we need some more oil, what are you going to say to him? I'll tell him we have a pact with our... It's all about the shareholders. Our shareholders own this company. Uh, they want a return of cash. Uh, we know what's happened when we increase U.S. shale too much over the last 10 years. The answer is no. It's not about the price. It's not about whether the U.S. president calls him up and asks him very nicely. The answer is no, because it comes down to shareholders. I'm not saying, I'm not making a comment on whether it's wrong or right. It's, I mean, it's a capitalist system and these are publicly traded companies that are inherently beholden to shareholder whims. But what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to demonstrate here is the supply issue runs deeper than what can be you know, merely fixed with just releasing some extra barrels from the strategic petroleum reserve. You've, you've kind of got, a deeper issue of the forces in play that are not allowing the supply to increase. So sure, it's going to help what some of the stuff has been done and, 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 and the price of oil did actually fall when Biden announced the release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. 
but it doesn't get to the heart of the issue, which is this supply and production. And the only way it's going to get to that is US government policy. Uh, I don't know, installing some kind of confidence in these producers um, through, you know, being the, the government as a the buyer of last resort almost to actually incentivize them to actually increase supply. I don't know what it is, but releasing from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve feels like a Band-Aid on a large wound that needs stitches and you need to go to the hospital. But the other thing, and there's, then there's also the, the completely external factors, that the price of oil recently came down as well anyway, and that's because China is imposing lockdowns across various parts. One of the key ones you hear is Shanghai is in this massive lockdown. And the oil price fell off of that news because, you know, there's anticipation that there'd be less demand from China, obviously one of the, a huge uh, user of energy for the short term, just due to their extremely strict lockdown procedures. And then that in turn might further exacerbate the supply chain problems, which we're already dealing with. We'll be dealing with for like two years, given China's key role in the global supply chain. And so at this point, I wonder, maybe we'll be talking about supply chains for years and years to come. Thank you for tuning in. That was episode 66 of the Market Pulse podcast. My name is Dion. I hope you enjoyed the topic. I really enjoyed, I I, I went down like a rabbit hole with the oil stuff just because it kept getting juicier and juicier. And I, I saw that clip of the, the guy on TV, the CEO, I was like, is he saying the quiet part out loud? <laughs> like, why isn't any? Why isn't any more? Why aren't there more people that are like, hey, see what this guy says? That that's a problem, right? Um, but I hope you enjoyed it, and thank you as always for tuning into the podcast. If you ever have uh, topics or suggestion ideas that, or you know, particular topics that you want to be explored in a bit more detail, hope wherever you are, you're having a great day, and thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I'll see you next episode. Cheers.